1: <laughs> I don't need to guess. <laughs> you don't. Just, just tell me. It is another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. It is, in fact, one of those, and it's also another Sundance. It is,
2: and we're calling this one Location, Location, Location. I didn't know that we were calling it. I didn't. We were, are we titling our episodes now? Th- this one we are Location, Location, Location. We should
1: start doing that. Lots of ep- lots of podcasts title their episodes. You
2: know, we kind of have we kind of have a little bit of that we have little descriptions i mean we could no 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 but
1: it's like we'll usually name it ellen curious but you know if we called it you know like we got a really cool like pull quote from her and i don't know what what crazy thing she said but you know she's like underwater flummoxed and then then that underwater
2: flummox episode exactly Exactly. it it could be that but uh, really what this is is about a couple of movies at sundance where location Plays a huge central part of the movie. And so clearly,
1: they were all shot in Los Angeles on a soundstage.
2: They, uh, uh, I don't believe either of them were actually. All right. So, so uh, no, but we have a horror film that I think you actually might be interested in. Well, maybe, maybe some people would call it suspense, but it's it's in the it was in the midnight it's section. A, a genre film, it, it, it absolutely, and it's called The Night House. And the night house has got some buzz coming out of uh, Sundance. It's going to it's going to get seen. Sweet. And we also have an interview with the director behind a movie called Black Bear and Black Bear. The house in that movie, the central location for that is like a character in the story. And actually, Alana Cody did an interview with the
1: director. And we're going to hear that in a little bit. Our esteemed producer, Alana Cody. That's right. Kicking ass at Sundance. That's right. Look at both of you. Maybe next year I can go with you. I don't know. Uh, it's, stranger things have happened. So. I know. Well, I, I'm just now beginning to feel like I can do stuff again now that my son is almost two.
2: Yes. And you totally will be able to because, you know, that's you're getting to the age where like uh, kids easier to travel. But, yeah. you know, uh, at two, I think you still get a free seat.
1: So I think it's until they're two
2: until they're two. You're right. Yeah. So I only no. have like two
1: more months. They're not going to have another. They wouldn't do like a speedy Sundance between now and May. Would no, they?
2: That, uh, maybe you're right. Crank
1: out that that a new so. Sundance. <laughs> okay so oh, Ilya what is yeah. what is our George Floyd close focus today
2: I want to talk about mobile filmmaking
1: mobile filmmaking
2: mobile filmmaking which is a term that some people out there are trying really hard to make a thing mm-hmm. um, I would argue that it already is kind of a thing it is and it isn't sure um, okay so Apple recently has a series of commercials in which they are you know Apple pays pretty darn well I'll tell you for, for their uh, further ads, they they ought apple, to Apple, hire me please hire me apple yeah, they 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 are they, they, they're, they're a big employer I, uh my 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 wife got to work on a on an apple thing a while ago and it was there was no no expenses being spared it seems mm-hmm. so anyway i'll tell you this that lately with the newest iphone the 11 plus they are really out there pushing the angle that the 11 pro oh excuse me you're right 11 pro the, uh, you know and i i understand now that there will be maybe less of a chance that Apple will sponsor us after I say what I'm going to say here. I don't know, because I might refute it. Go on. Okay. well, they're having Hollywood filmmakers make short films shooting elaborate behind the scenes. And they're essentially telling their customers through these behind the scenes. It's a you know, it's a professional movie making tool in your pocket Mm -hmm. that 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 is what they're doing now. I think it's really interesting. And if you listen to exactly what some of the people who are saying who are who are in these commercials, they they might be going a little bit short of, of giving the full wholehearted endorsement that maybe Apple is wanting. But really, there is a certain amount of validity to what they're saying. This is a, uh, a tool. But ultimately, the productions that they're putting together are, I'm going to guess, somewhere in the neighborhood of like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more. Yeah. And at that point, when you're spending that kind of money, the camera that you're using is not a real line item and expense it's not it's, we're talking about you've got so much money already you're only harming yourself by choosing to work with a a small mobile phone as your primary camera and i believe that uh if you pay close attention to what what's being said as well as the names that are on the slate like for example there was a snowball fight one which was uh it was great it was great shot by robert Ellswood. and here's the thing you mobile filmmaker person out there are not robert Ellswit. you probably also don't have a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget of course and i know we've mentioned this on the show before but there's a new one with friend of the show lawrence sure who of course been on the show academy mm-hmm. award nominated uh cinematographer for joker and he's like yeah it's a it's a great tool for me to have for my personal projects which i think is a is a perfect endorsement for that he's not saying i'm going to shoot joker 2 with my with my iphone yeah. he's saying it's it's totally accurate for it's totally pr- appropriate for what I'm doing now granted it looks like the short that he was shooting uh, on behalf of Apple had a real budget they had like a process trailer they had like you know yeah, yeah. Apple boxes they had stuff and I think that the people who were they're targeting to sell the phone to are not going to have any of that, and they're also not Lawrence Shure or Robert Ellswood So it's like to say that this is the filmmaking tool that solves all your all your problems, and it, I feel like it's a little disingenuous.
1: I don't think. That's- I mean, look, it, I mean, to me, it, it goes both ways. Can you make a film that people are going to watch on it? I think absolutely. I think if you should you though, should I mean. It depends on what your needs are. So, for instance, uh, Tangerine, which was a huge hit at Sundance, was shot on the iPhone 5S, I believe. And
2: I will also, though, tell you that there's an awful lot of people I've talked to who said they could not watch it. And it could have been for content, but it could also have been for... for I mean,
1: like, I, I had no problem watching it, and it felt... I, I, I've, I, think I I've. turned it off. I think I've talked about this on, uh, on the podcast, is to me, it was... I watched it, and I'm like... Oh, this is an Italian neorealism ha- happening with American independent filmmaking. It's like, okay, we're going to forego all the, all the tchotchkes and gear and whatever. And we're going to tell this story that's like, so pared down that the people on the, in the background on the street, don't even realize that they're in a movie. And you know, is that how every movie should be made? I don't think so. the, that filmmaker went on to make the Florida project. That was not how he made it that, that film, he chose to make tangerine the way he chose to make tangerine. Steven Soderbergh made Unsane, which was also shot on an iPhone. And I remember watching the trailer and being like, something's off with the way this looks. And then I did a little bit of research and found that it was shot on an iPhone. And I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Now, should you make a film on an iPhone? not necessarily. I think if the style works for what you're making, then go for it. But I also think, and to me, this is one of the cool things about it, in my opinion, is that like if you're an aspiring filmmaker, if if I'd had an iPhone 11 Pro when I was 14 years old, would I have made films on it? You bet your ass. And it's because it would have been accessible and I could get my hands on it and it was easy to use and I could figure out how to make stuff I could figure out how to compose shots. I could figure out how to edit stuff together. And I think as a tool for pre-visualization, as a tool for learning, and maybe as a tool for making your actual film, if your choices are, I can't make my film at all or I can make my film on an iPhone, then make your film on an iPhone.
2: I've heard this argument many times before and I'll I'll throw it in. I think that, hey, you know, having a phone is great. Having a phone that takes great images is is great also. But let's say you don't let's say you can't afford uh, an iPhone. It's an it's a thousand dollar phone as it is. And you've got a perfectly decent phone. But then you happen to see which I just saw the other day, someone selling a Canon C 300 camera with a lens for like nine hundred and fifty bucks. Yeah, I mean. Don't you think that that would have been it would be a far better tool to use to make a movie than a phone?
1: Um, I agree that it would if you already if you know how to use the tool. But I think couldn't you learn? Couldn't you take that and watch a bunch of YouTube videos and go like, boom, now I know how to use this. Of course you could. I got into kind of an extended argument with a mutual acquaintance of ours. I'm not going to say friend. Um, I'll tell you who it is off mic. And this person was explaining to me. Oh, I already know who it is. Yeah, of course you do. Uh, That you know, iPhone is just as good as as uh, now. I definitely know anything else. And. You know, my response was like, go make your movie on an iPhone. If that's what you believe in, if you love that look, then go make a movie on an iPhone. I mean, I remember when, you know, I mean, like, look, 15 years ago, we would have been sitting here discussing the benefits and drawbacks of mini DV cameras. That's right. I think that I don't have to say to anyone. And I had the same argument 15 years ago. But an iPhone looks better than a mini DV camera. And how many films got made on mini DV?
2: Twelve. I, I don't. I don't know <laughs> a I, lot.
1: I think so. <laughs> probably more like twelve million. Uh, uh, a lot of movies got made on mini DV. It was a huge revolution, and I think that the more you can make things, the the best camera often is the one that you have on you at the moment. And but I'll make the same argument I made with mini DV. If you had a budget to not use mini DV, then then you shouldn't
2: have. And if you were making a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar. 60 second commercial or whatever it is you probably have the money to not use a mini dv camera or a phone sure so uh, it's it's a little disingenuous to to put put forth that hey here's here's the way to do this although you
1: are talking to someone who did a 180 something thousand dollar ad campaign thing the uh, the films i did for audi the budget was like 180 something thousand and they were all shot on 24p mini dv but they were also only intended for the internet, which in 2005 w- wasn't exactly what it is today.
2: And, you know, in the in this world, you know, throwing back to our last episode of 9x16, by 16, 16x9, 16 by it's like, uh, who's to say your your masterpiece might be made vertically and it should be for a phone and may not be actually a theatrical yeah, I mean, the or thing a is television.
1: Here, here's, here's how I would look at it. I, I would say, firstly, if the style of the phone lends itself to whatever you're telling, then the phone is perfectly fine to use. I've done shots for various projects where it needed to look like it was shot on a phone and we just shot it on a phone not not a problem and you there are programs on the iphone i don't know if it's on android there's a program on the iphone called filmic pro that's like 20 bucks or something like that it's still pain in the butt to use a
2: phone for your you know changing your shots and your quality goes down and all kinds of other things Sure. well i says. mean
1: again like i'm not i didn't use it to make like a whole movie i used it to make one shot that was supposed to look like it was filmed off of a phone and was being shown on the news perfect so so to me like you know that's the perfect use for that would i would i use like the dji uh, osmo pocket to do the same thing maybe you know if it needed to look a little bit better but I also think that for some people's learning process, the order that they're gonna learn how to do this is not gonna be learn all the gear, then learn how to compose shots, then learn how to work with actors, then learn how to write or whatever it is. Like for some people it might be, I wanna write and work with actors and I got this thing in my pocket that I can make a short on and, and Bob's your uncle. And I think for those people, go for it. I, I don't think that there's really any downside except if you did spend a lot, a lot, a lot of money on an iPhone short, which I think you probably wouldn't get to that point unless that was exactly the look you were going for. Like when Steven Soderbergh says, I'm making a movie on the iPhone, everyone goes, yes, Steven, because the guy has, uh, but that,
2: he's, but this he's, is he's his steamrolled M- into
1: into different technology his whole career.
2: It's his M.O. That's yeah. what he does and so I don't think it's not surprising and he probably learns a lot from the process. I mean, yeah, I remember him doing stuff on JVC camcorders back in the day. I remember so.
1: I remember uh, Full Frontal, going to see Full Frontal, Full Frontal in, exactly. in the theater, which was shot on the Canon XL1. That's right.
2: But, but also 35mm film, and if you really want to make an XL1 look bad, show oh, it next oh, to 35mm yeah. film. You
1: know, the XL1 stuff looked completely assy in that film, and I, I wasn't a fan of it, but I did appreciate the fact that he was trying and experimenting. something different, and I feel like, you know, here's the thing, like that uh, snowball fight short, Yeah, I've watched it, if I saw that on a big screen it would probably look pretty goddamn great i'm sure and yeah they spent a lot of money on it and yeah if they would have had whatever full complement of lenses and whatever accessories that you have you know for regular cameras they they could have gotten more precise maybe with some of what they were doing but i watched the behind the scenes on it and they were kind of embracing the form factor of the phone 100 like i can throw this phone on this thing and drag it across the ground and i don't care because it's just a phone and i think that's you know, it, it's a way to look at it. And I also feel like, you know, don't be afraid to use the phone to do insert shots or something. Uh, a DP who was on this show once, I don't want to out him, but he worked on a big network TV show and they needed an insert shot on a plane of like somebody pushing the button to call the, no, no, the you, flight attendant. Uh, it's in our interview. That's that's, that's there. Walt Lloyd. Okay, cool. And so Walt <laughs> shot it on his own phone and, and sent it in and it ended up on network television. And I think, you know, the fact that you can do that I don't know. I think it's it's a different time than you and I uh, came up in. And I don't I I don't think it's really different, though. All I think is it's new technology. I feel like, though, the the the
2: arguments for everything is the same. It's like here is a less expensive, possibly more convenient way to do what used to take more people and was more expensive.
1: So I think it's the exact same argument. So to me, you know, in, in argument for why Apple should sponsor us, (laughs) <laughs> um i, <laughs> I no I, I like i like how you got you you brought it back to that no so. but to, but to me i think that it's actually com- a completely legitimate choice to make is it the best choice it depends on the project and and it's a project to buy project thing if you're shooting something in crazy low light probably not the best thing to do you know i mean like there, there's so many detractions
2: from having to work with the format as as a phone that i still feel though that there is uh Inexpensive ways that if you already have a budget that you're harming yourself by by making that
1: choice Yeah, I, I I think I can agree to disagree with you on this one because I I Completely understand what you're talking about and have I shot anything like any full projects on a phone? I haven't you know It surprises me more documentaries aren't being shot on phones because it's easy to walk anywhere with a phone. That's
2: right I actually feel like that is the one case and, and you know uh, Apple of course, using the power of Hollywood in their in their projects, getting you know name directors and cinematographers and stuff involved, they should be telling people to shoot with their with their phone for documentaries. That is like the perfect first for it.
1: A quick like on the fly interview. That,
2: that is it. It is like that is what this thing is good for. It's like you're gonna shoot with the camera you've got on you. Guess what? You've got a phone on you. You can shoot a camera. That this is the documentary. Tool That should be uh, should be touted out there, you know, uh, film schools, I, I, a very, very prestigious film school. I had a conversation with someone who was high up in the department. He's like, next year, we're talking about first years. Don't get to touch a real camera. They have to use their phone. Hmm. And I was like, really?
1: Interesting. Really?
2: Like you're they're going you're going to make them use a phone? Uh, like isn't it no no longer film school? And they're like, well, they're already familiar with it, and film actually school. it actually saves us a lot of money of having to buy extra cameras this year. And I was like, oh okay, <laughs> now now I understand. But at the same time, there there is a case to be made that you should be trying to get better results from the inexpensive tool you've got in your pocket. So
1: that's interesting and uh please send your uh comments curses and, yeah and your fine iphone and or android filmed masterpieces to us at cam noir
2: only if they are horizontal only if they're in
1: landscape. I'll, I'll, I'll take them either way
2: <laughs> okay so uh let's jump right into the uh the interview the first interview that we've got up is with uh, david Bruckner, the director of the night house as well as uh, writers ben collins and luke petrosky <laughs> The Cinematography
3: Podcast interview.
2: David, Ben, and Luke, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. I've just come from a screening of uh, your latest movie, which is The Nighthouse. and there was a tremendous reaction from the audience today at the noon screening. What was the uh, reaction like last night at the midnight premiere?
4: Oh, uh, they were into it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think we uh, I think we scared some folks, uh, which is I guess surprising. I think movies. I don't know maybe scarier than we thought it would be in some ways like i don't know that that was always necessarily our focus you know there's a lot going on in the film i think you just get desensitized when you're working on a movie and you
0: forget that things that you're so used to like i felt it last night of like oh they don't know what's about to happen let me and then big reactions so that that was incredibly pleasing yeah, Luke?
5: You, yeah, I think for me, you know, you, you're going to get the screams, of course, and you're going to get the laughs. And, you know, screams are, you know, I like screams. I, I, laughter's better because it's a little bit more engaged with the characters in the moment. But my favorite stuff was there were a couple moments where something uh, really conceptually scary happened, and you would just hear, like, <gasps> quiet gasps. Or or even at the end of the movie, there was a guy who sort of, like, had a resigned sigh of, like, relief. just Or, like, like. <sighs> like he just went through something. And so those little sounds were my favorites to hear. Uh,
2: this movie, at least at the beginning, it almost feels like we are watching a crime drama, a thriller, maybe even like sci-fi, but it's it's a horror film. It's, it's a horror film through and through. Uh, why horror as a genre? I mean, I could see this movie going in, in many different directions and spidering off into all these different options, but uh, I know you've got a background in horror, but 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 why horror for this?
4: Why horror for this, necessarily? Well, I, I think... I mean, how better to capture feelings of grief uh, to explore depression and anxiety and um, some of these common dark feelings that we all go through and, and to spiral with it into some um, very questionable, difficult places. I mean, it just feels like the horror genre is, uh, and, and the haunt tropes that I think are present in this film give us give us mechanisms by which to explore these these ideas that are fun and um, and, and digestible, I hope.
2: Tell me about how this project comes together Uh, from from a a script standpoint, uh, Ben, Luke, maybe you guys want to want to dive in here with uh, how how do how do you and David connect?
0: We first wrote it in 2014, sort of at the end of 2014, and Luke and I had been writing together for several years at that point and we were already good friends with, with David and we had like developed some stuff with him. and we were sort of hitting a frustration point with, with like our career in the sense of like trying to pitch to, to write on you know studio projects where it's like somebody else's idea or a franchise or an adaptation and things like that. and you you end up expending so much of your creative energy in service of somebody else's thing and then when you don't get the job, it's like all those things kind of just drop dead, and and we were getting frustrated, and we hadn't had a movie made yet, and it was like, well, why don't we try to just connect for our own selves to things that we love, things that scare us, things that compel us in a way, and go back over all of these old ideas, and in some cases it may be a character, or an idea for a location, or an idea for a scare scene, because we just write in the horror genre, so that's where all these, you know, things came from, and so it was kind of assembling those into something that felt cohesive and then sort of had its own gravity, and then from there, I mean, emotionally, we connected with the character, and you can talk some about that, that, but.
5: No, I mean, you you covered kind of the genesis of where it came from, and then, you know, as far as the the David Bruckner component, you know, we had mutual representation for a minute, who kind of hooked us up as friends, and, you know, when he read the script, he, he got it, and I think a script like this is so subtle, and so like, you know, you, you can push it in all these different ways, but, but it was really exciting to, to talk to somebody who like, when I said like, can we make a mo- horror movie that doesn't feel safe? Like, can we talk about these things in a way that is, you know, can be fun, but also feel like that horror movie that, you know, that one friend of yours is like, I don't want to watch that one. Like that one doesn't feel safe. I don't like you, like I remember being a kid and seeing certain Stephen King books up on my parents' shelf and being like, I don't, that, I don't like that book. I don't want to see that book on the shelf. Um, and that Dave knew what I was talking about, you know? Um, so. Davis,
0: is brave enough to make a movie that someone doesn't want to see. It's really the
3: <laughs> well, I mean, it's it. it's the
5: forbidden fruit, and then, then it makes you want to see it all yes. the more, you know. And I think that's what horror does: is it, it's talking about things. It's like I don't want to look, but I'm gonna look. I'm gonna put my fingers over my eyes, but I'm gonna peek through them. And that's dealing with topics. We really we're so case hardened from working in the genre that you know we wanted to do a horror movie that could talk about things that actually made us a little uncomfortable.
2: Uh, I I think in that regard, it's a a complete success. So um, let let me ask you guys about how then the production comes together, because clearly uh, you guys have a budget. I know I'm not going to ask you about budget. This is Sundance. We don't don't say those (laughs) things. Um, But at the same time, you've got a script, you've got a director, you've got the writers on board. How does the rest of the project come to reality?
4: Well, I was blown away by the script, couldn't stop thinking about it. We were having conversation after conversation about it. And um, it was kind of like a, we'd say like a loose attachment or more like, mm-hmm. can we do anything with it? Or like, guys, I'd love to do something with it. And um, and I sat down with Keith Levine um, at the Toronto Film Festival actually. And he just, he asked me like, what have you read lately? And I was like, well, I mean there's this movie that no one has the guts to make and uh what do you think and uh and he loved it and from that day forward fought for it and fought for a way to get it made and um and we were very fortunate to find some financiers that came on board and believed in it and took a big risk with something like this and so you know from there you 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 go out and you uh uh try to find an actor try to find somebody that's uh, that's fitting for the role and um i mean when Rebecca Hall read it, the idea that it captured her imagination and that she was willing to go there with us—it was a miracle for us in a lot of ways. And I, I think from there forward, we knew we knew we had a movie. We knew we had something special that was going to come to life. And it was just a matter of when.
2: If you don't mind sharing with our with our listeners uh, about how many days was the uh, principal production? Twenty-four. That's quick. You got a lot of you got you you use a lot of the same locations. Looks like over and over again, but uh, you got a lot of production design and makeup and different things and days and tons of night shooting. And 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 actually, of your twenty-four days, how many of them were nights? Would you say?
4: Oh God, probably about two-thirds. I'd say you know don't don't shoot a movie that all takes place at night in upstate New York in the middle of the summer because you only get about nine hours of night and you actually you actually need full 12 hours to get the movie in the can so yeah when you're way way behind and you're pulling your hair out and the entire crew is standing there waiting for the sun to go down that's that's a unique kind of stress yeah uh, uh,
2: <laughs> all right well uh, you have previously worked in anthologies and and uh-huh. also features uh what can, can you give our listeners a little bit of like the difference is there is one more structured one you have to be more uh you know tightly controlled do you have more room to breathe and one or another oh between features
4: and anthologies, yeah. Um, Well, I think, you know, with anthology shorts, you can get in late, you know, get out early in a sense. Uh, You know, you can take a different kind of risk because you don't have the responsibility of holding, you know, a very attentive audience captive for an entire hour and a half or two hours. So, uh, you know, there's certainly like there are a lot of responsibilities to features that extend beyond my experience with anthologies for sure. And then, you know, mostly it's just a, it's a bigger load to carry. It's, you want something that's going to, you know, hold like this. One of the things I, I love so much about this, I still can't find the bottom of this story. Like it's never uninteresting to me. And so there's, there's a lot to feast on in every single direction, every aspect of the film, every department head had a different way to interact with the ideas that ben and luke had put on the table and uh i think when you you're you're helming something that's a feature you know you need something that's dense enough that it can supply all that energy yeah
2: this is the cinepod this is the cinematography podcast so tell me a little bit about the working relationship with the uh, cinematographer Mm -hmm. and what what they bring to the equation what you know after reading the script and uh you know how that vision became the reality
4: Oh, right on. Yeah. Uh, well, Elijah Christian, who shot Columbus, came on board. I got to know Elijah very quickly as as we were marching towards production. It all came together very fast, um, and uh, he had a fantastic eye for not just the images, but uh, or, or the frames necessarily, but for the feelings that you know that they would conjure from moment to moment. And so it was uh, just a fantastic exploration for us to get in the room and talk about how the movie made us feel and. Um, you know what we found scary and what we found unnerving and 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 then to really brainstorm about different things that we could employ when it came to the cinematography that would contribute to all these themes you know and again that's what that's what every great key will do is they'll get excited about these topics and they they become more than an expert about specifically what their job is and they become another force um an, another mind that you contend with as, uh, on the journey in, in, in a sense and uh can, can so, you give me an example well, I think that they have ideas about the story, and Elijah had ideas about you know what was frightening, and, and particularly when it came to the cinematography, it was he was you know very keen to make sure that there were you know that there was depth in the shadows, that there was a world that you could see in the corner of every frame. I, I was on this kick. I, I thought, God, maybe we should do this movie in four three. It'll be crazy and confined. And 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 he convinced me. He's like, No, you got to go. You got to go two three nine with this one. You got to choose an aspect ratio that's you need information in the wings. Like we don't know. How this movie behaves, and um, and I, I had a certain self consciousness about two three five because I was like, sometimes it's the go to to just add a cinematic quality, and um and, and he convinced me that it was it was the appropriate choice. One of the more
2: interesting visual cues, and you use it a couple of times in the movie, is the moon and the moon and sort of the example of two. I, I'm not I'm not going to give anything really away for our uh, for our listeners, but um, of like two places, two times, two environments, two things. Uh, does that come from the script, Ben? Luke, is that is, is yeah. that like right out of? Is, I mean, because it's it's a it's a wonderful visual, and it, it, to me, it felt like it, it could have been done in many ways, but it, it's really effective with the
5: moon. I I am so thrilled that the the red moon got in there. Never I Never believed it. That I it would was happen. I was so certain that that was a detail that was going to be taken out. So. <laughs> Just those touches of, you know, letting it get a little bit more surreal and the whole, the night lake. Uh, I don't think that spoils anything for, for people who haven't seen the movie. Um, yeah, I think we just wanted to get a little bit freaky and psychedelic and a lot of times, if if unless there's like a a very literal answer for what something is, is like, well, nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to spend the money on a visual. It's just kind of atmospheric and kind of suggestive of an mm-hmm. idea and a metaphor and the duality of the movie and just, you know, sort of pulled from images of, like, shit like anime. You know, like nobody wants to touch that stuff, so I'm glad that it's in there, and I think it's really effective, and I think that makes all the difference. It, it wouldn't be the same without that second red moon in the sky to sort of really tell you this is different in <laughs> we space.
0: And we, we, we stopped asking certain questions like that because I mean, I think Dave was so stressed with with prep and everything that it was like we didn't want to pester him. Like, hey, is the moon still gonna like be in there? And then like we were on set for that that day of shooting on the lake, and it wasn't until was it what are they, is it called a condor? What's that thing called? Like yeah. the the biggest light I've ever seen in my life. I saw them like rigging the things, and I was like, oh shit, I think that's what. The, oh, and I was like waiting to see when they. I was like, that's it. It is going to be there, but I didn't even know even then if what the sort of VFX shots were going to be. So. Yeah, I never wanted to bother you,
4: but I was incredibly pleased and surprised, and it's a delight. I think we went farther with that (laughs) than, than, yeah, than it was even suggested in the script. Mm -hmm. We, like, really ran with it, yeah.
2: What are your? And this is a this is a question really for for all of you. And I I think that there are some very uh, pat answers to this question because you guys are you know, spoiler not the first people I've, I've asked this question to. But what are your hopes and dreams for this project? I, I know that you hope that uh, it will it will live a life and that you will get uh, you will get more work out of this. And uh, but do you have any anything else? Anything that is like uh, wh- what do you where do you hope this film goes? What do you what do you hope that it accomplishes?
4: I I mean I just I just hope that and I think there will be people that enjoy it the way that we do. I mean, this has been a conversation that we've been having for a couple years and, and it comes with that kind of uh, dark giggle, you know, I mean, there's something about it that is, uh, you know, it's fascinating and it's scary, but it's also confounding in some ways. And you can't, really get your head around it completely and um, you know there are no easy answers um, both with the topics that this that this film explores or in the film itself in a sense and so I just I guess my hope is that there there are people that will see that and embrace that and and get as much out of it as we do yeah
0: yeah same answer but phrased slightly differently like I'm the kind of straight like person that when I like a movie in a certain way I will watch it Endlessly. Like I mean there are movies that I've seen hundreds of times and and I because it's like if I like the feel of it or some intangible quality that keeps me either thinking about it or it, it just I don't know. It's it's the idea it's a bummer when there's a movie that you like and then you never want to watch it again. It's like the ones that I really love are the ones that I'm gonna live with and continually like understand new things. It's like, you know, the millionth time I've seen two thousand one and then there's suddenly something that's funny in that movie that I never realized was funny before and it's like, Oh, that's great because these things are alive in a way and we grow as people with them in a way and I so anytime we're making a movie I mean my hope is that we're like I'm trying to imagine that I'm making the kind of movies for people that are like me that want to experience things that way and not like a disposable weekend thing you know so it's like it has nothing to do with success on a financial level or anything like that or career stuff it's like it's out there I hope that it hits that for people and makes them think and makes them feel and they enjoy it or whatever it does for them
5: yeah, I think that's a great answer. I think I want somebody to watch it again. I, that I think that's the biggest hope and and the biggest thing. And if they don't watch it again, I want them to at least be sort of haunted by it. You know, at least I don't want it to be you. You turn it off and never think about it again. Whether it's just an image that's cool or or a facial expression that Rebecca Hall makes or or a concept that unsettles you. But I would like the ideas there's so much disposability today and there's so much content that the idea that you would want to recommend this to somebody else or put it out again yourself or just keep gnawing at some of the ideas is that's a huge win for me and to feel something. I
4: also hope that uh, for your podcast listeners, if anybody enjoys it on a first watch, you know, you said, we'll, we'll, we'll see it again. We'll, we'll look a little deeper that, you know, there are, several different ways to read the movie you know I mean there's kind of a surface level read that you can walk away with but um, you know I just encourage people to look deeper question what's real and what's not and what they're seeing and 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 hopefully they will discover I think as we have that there, there are other delights in the ways that you can interpret what you're seeing.
2: This is not intended to be a uh, Sophie's Choice sort of question here but if, you, if there was one shot and if you can't pick a shot maybe a scene but if there was one shot in this movie that is like your standout your favorite that you you love it every time you see it even through the whole editing process like that's your that's the shot could could you could you tell us could you share it with us
0: i have a favorite scene and so i can pick a shot within that but the bookstore scene where rebecca hall and stacey martin first interact that's a great reveal it's not even that it's like a terribly complicated you know series of setups but it's like it's so doing everything perfectly and they are so perfectly in the frame and every every element of body language that's it's just it's i It's my favorite scene in the whole movie and maybe my favorite
4: scene we've ever written I'm, I'm going to go scene as well, and uh, I think it's when Beth gets home from the bar that night at her house with Claire, and, and she tells her of the time that she died for four minutes. Um, it was a scene that really struck me the first time I read it, and it was a scene that we shot at about five fifteen in the morning, you know, as the sun was coming up, and um, Rebecca and Sarah had this just kind of low gravel to their voices that's hard to fake, that, you know, we, we were all at the end of a day, and, um, and I was really, really pressed for time, and Rebecca's close-up in that scene, we shot one take and I mean I'm I'm a nervous filmmaker like I'll shoot 15 takes or something if I can and uh, and I remember looking at the you know one close-up and going that's it you know let's let's call it and so for me I mean that might be my, my favorite scene that I've ever directed um, I love the way the images stick together I love what the actors are doing um, and it just sticks with me I'm very precious about it Yeah
5: yeah, these, those are good choices. I probably should have ended with Dave, but I'll, um, I'll come back to my red moon and uh, mm-hmm. my last day on set when it was also like five in the morning and it was freezing cold, even though it was summer. Oh it was freezing God. cold, but they were on the boat. And for me, it's the shot of Rebecca's face on the boat and it's sort of like the culmination of the story and I remember sitting there, you know, standing there and watching them filming it and not, you know, you could feel like the wind from like the river sticks, and it felt like I was in the underworld and it it just tied on her face and the rocking of the boat and the way her hair moves and she kind of plaintively asks the question, where is he? And, uh, it kind of sums up the whole emotional thing of the movie, where it's like, if the movie could only be one scene, it would be this woman in this red light, kind of plaintively asking the question, where is he?
2: Alright, well, well, gentlemen, I think that just about does it for time, but uh, where can people find you? If they want to follow you online somewhere, or are you online somewhere? I'm uh, we, on
5: uh, Twitter.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think we're all three of us are on Twitter is probably the best way to go.
4: I think mine is Luke underscore Piotrowski. Mine's ruck b-r-u-c-k Macina because it was 2010 and for some reason i thought that was clever and then i got stuck with it
0: you can change it i think it's too late yeah yeah and mine is uh, at b davis
4: collins
2: uh, all right gentlemen thank you so much for being on the, the podcast thank you. i r- really appreciate you uh, taking a few minutes
4: all right cheers thanks man that was great
2: All right, that was David Bruckner, writers Ben Collins and Luke Pietroski. Thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Uh, I can't I,
1: wait to see that movie.
2: I, I, it's right up your alley, and uh, I can't wait to listen to to the interview because uh, Ben Katz is going to have uh, he's going to have a little bit of work trying to make that one sound good. There was a very very loud Italian gentleman in the restaurant we were doing mm-hmm. the interview who just would not stop making noise. Well,
1: luckily, I don't know if you know. <laughs> I don't know if you know about this, but Audition has a filter to remove loud Italian people. Oh, good. I'm yeah. so glad. It's yeah. like, what do they call that filter? So. I'm not going to name it.
2: <laughs> it's the case. Alla it's the, uh, <laughs> he's not that loud. No, but he's Italian. That's true. OK, so Ben's time to pay the bills. All right, let's pay them bills. I got to tout the Aperture MC Light once again. It is uh, not a rapper from the early 90s. <laughs> MC Light. <laughs> MC Light. was like the,
1: the rapper your parents would let you listen to. Uh,
2: and, and I know that you just went there with me, which, you know, dates us. So, okay. Uh, really, the the MC is, they've got a little uh, slogan on there that says, any color, any time. And I will tell you, by the time you're listening to this episode.
1: Any color. Anytime. I want it. I want plaid at
2: 3 a.m. You can get that. All right. You can get plaid. It might take three lights, but yeah, you, you've, you've got it. Uh,
1: here's the thing I wanted no to bring. One, no one's made a plaid filter yet. I think Aperture should get on that.
2: Go on. I'm sure there is a plaid filter. It's probably <laughs> a Gobo filter of some sort. But anyway, uh, some sort of like, yeah, dichroic glass thing. Here it is your plaid filter. All right. Uh, there are special effects built into the MC. But in addition to that, you can actually win one for free coming what? up. Yes, Hot Rod Cameras is about to launch a contest where we're giving away an MC light. And I have to I have to mention here, by the time you hear this episode, that contest will be underway. And if you haven't followed us on Instagram, you're going to have to do that to enter the the contest. Do they have but to like,
1: make a feature on an iPhone? They don't
2: have to make any features right. on an iPhone, although this light is smaller than an iPhone. It is. It is particularly small and uh, rechargeable battery, which is super cool. So a lot of our customers have bought them recently. Maybe uh, some people have bought multiples of them. It's been such a huge hit that we're going to give a couple away. You have to uh, follow the instructions on our landing page. You put in your email. You you post on Instagram. You tag a friend and boom, you can actually win two lights, one for you, one for a friend.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome. Totally uh, do it. What, yeah, if, what a, if you just want to keep them both for yourself?
2: You can't. You have to give it away. That's part of, that's whole, part of the whole thing. So it's like, you know, you got to give it, give it, give it away. Give it away
1: now. (laughs)
2: Oh, listen to you, you know, bringing up the uh, red hot chili peppers here. Which, you know, red color you can get out of the uh, (laughs) the after MC. (laughs) But they aren't hot. No, very, very cold, actually. Okay, so next up is another interview done by our own Alana Cody. I think she was slightly nervous, but I think that uh, don't be nervous, Alana. You're you're more seasoned at this than either one of us. You're more than both of us put together. That that's true, but uh, I think she uh, maybe hadn't done it in a while. But uh, but regardless, uh, I I think she did a great job. I think she got she got it done. And the movie Black Bear is definitely a movie that had a. Huge amount of buzz coming out of the the, uh, Sundance. It has Aubrey Plaza in it, I believe. Our producer, Alana Cody, did the interview with the director, Lawrence Michael Levine, and uh, they talk about the location. Remember, this is the episode of Location, Location, Location. Location, Location, Location. The location in the movie plays a central part. And uh, without further ado, here's the interview.
3: I'm here with Lawrence Michael Levine, who just uh, directed a movie called Black Bear that premiered here at the Sundance Film Festival. Congratulations. Was this your first film at the festival? It was,
6: after nine rejections, finally got in.
3: (laughs) How how does that feel? Feels great. Good.
6: Yeah, it's an amazing festival, like no other.
3: So tell me a little bit about the film. The thing that I noticed the most when I was watching it was um, the setting is really what it's about. So when you were setting out to make the film, did you have the setting in mind before you wrote it or after you'd already seen the location?
6: Interesting that you ask that. So the location I, I wrote the film with a specific location in mind. A friend of mine showed me some photographs of a like a lake house. Actually, it was like a lake estate with many different structures on it. It was in upstate New York. And um, he said like, this would be a great place to make movies. You could do it here. Like it would cost you so little. And he was just kind of encouraging me to write something for the place. And I started to, I looked at the pictures and Steen started to come to me and the script flowed out pretty easily, um, more than others that I've written. And, And then by the time that we were ready to make the movie, that place was no longer available. So I had written it specifically with, with these like this geography in mind. And it was very difficult to find a place that approximated that location. And when we did find it, it was great, but it was logistically a nightmare to shoot
3: in. Right, I think I read it was like five miles on a dirt road or? I think,
6: yeah, I think it was more like seven, and uh, on a gravel road, yeah. And um, it was really remote. I mean, like it was seven hours from New York, three hours from Montreal deep in the woods. No food, accommodations were lackluster. Uh, And the house was solar powered and off the grid, so the energy for the film was problematic.
3: Wow, very challenging. But you decided that um, the way that you wrote the movie, that it had to be, you know, a location like that.
6: Yeah. Yeah, and I fell in love with the location. It's I thought it was so beautiful and perfect.
3: Yeah, it looks that gorgeous. That whatever
6: hardships we were going to suffer would be worth it, and now it seems like they were, but if we had made the film, if the film didn't turn out, well, uh, maybe I'd be singing a different tune.
3: Right, right. So, so tell me about your inspiration for writing the script, because it changes in the middle, so I'm, yeah. I'm curious about what was going through your head when you were writing it. Um, the
6: script is... It's really personal without being autobiographical, if that makes sense. Um, it's kind of inspired by my wife and my relationship with my wife, who's a great filmmaker and has acted in my films. Uh, so I di- I was drawing from our experiences. It was very personal in that way, but it was definitely heightened and, and not autobiographical. So. Uh, Similar kinds of experiences, mm-hmm. uh, and also people we know, and just being close to a lot of artists.
3: So there's like a turning point in the movie, and it and it almost feels like there's two different movies happening.
6: Yeah. I mean, I would describe it as a movie being, it's two chapters, really. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing... Um, you know, have you ever heard of Hong Sang-so, the director? I don't, I don't think he's that well-known in the States. I think his most famous movie is called In Another Country. Okay. He, he just, him and Bunuel kind of do these interesting films that play around with identity mm-hmm. and just are playful and very cute with narrative in ways that are very thought-provoking. So uh, I was just inspired by these kind of movies that aren't straightforward. And it's not only what's happening in the movie that's interesting, but the structure of the film itself. Right. So you're reflecting on the structure of the film and what that means, as well as just what's happening in the movie. And it just, I think, I wanted to give audiences something mysterious Mm
3: -hmm. and
6: unusual to, to a movie that would stay with them that they would have to think about. And I think, like, that just came out to be playful with structure, but I wasn't super conscious.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting too, because when you're saying that it's autobiographical, since you and your wife are based loosely you know yeah. no, are both also I would not call it autobiographical no, I know. sorry it still, is personal yeah, yeah. personal yes because um, you're both filmmakers yeah. and actors you've yeah. had, you also have an acting background so I thought yeah. and writers yeah so it's interesting how it turns that in the middle that way
6: I mean it's about the creative process exactly and it's about like the lengths that artists will go to to have something to say have something to write about
3: one of the interesting things that I found was the characters in the talk, they have a long night discussing big issues, and one of them is like feminism. And so I was curious about how, um, were you interested in sort of playing with those ideas and sort of making people think about it more, and especially in these days?
6: Yeah, actually, I wasn't as interested in the ideas themselves. Right. Those, those ideas are the kinds of things that people are discussing now. But I think often when people are discussing ideas, they have a different agenda. Right. And in this particular case in the film, I, you know, there's a guy who spouts ideas that could be viewed as anti-feminist, But the question is, does he really think these things or is he just trying to piss off his girlfriend Mm -hmm. because he feels belittled by her? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of about the way we use ideology and use our speech to achieve a desired effect, like hurt another person or get them to be close to you or whatever. The ideas are just the kind of currency for having an impact on another person. Because the people in this movie are very slippery. They say things that they later contradict you know, and it's it's kind of just, that's my experience. People, when they get into arguments or when they talk, they express themselves in ways that aren't necessarily how they really feel. You know, I think people tend to be a lot angrier.
3: So do you think anyone, any of the characters actually did hit upon any actual truths in the film?
6: I mean, I think the story itself hits on truths, but I think the actors, uh, I think the characters in the film, you're left wondering what they really believed, what they really meant. I think almost everything that's said in the movie, particularly the first chapter, you know?
3: Yeah, a little bit maybe about the cinematography. I mean, it looked really gorgeous. How was it working with with your cinematographer, and how did you guys decide how to set the look and, and for the film?
6: It was amazing. The work that he did was absolutely incredible. I can't believe he pulled it off. This movie was very quick. We shot it in 21 days. It was all night, so we were exhausted and uh he he i mean the movie looks it looks incredible yeah <laughs> it looked I, really gorgeous I, you know i i um i didn't micromanage his lighting i mean that was the, the, those things I, I left entirely up to him we had a discussion before the film started where we had many many discussions before the film started about the looks we were going for um we looked at some films and we we knew that we wanted the two parts to have different different cinematic approaches. And we knew that we wanted the first part to have a very um, more classic, traditional, um, almost like European art film sensibility to it. And we wanted the second part to feel uh, verite. And so there's no handheld in the first part, and the second part, there's nothing that isn't handheld. But we wanted the lighting approach to be fairly consistent so that it wasn't, you're not supposed to look at it as two different films, but they are supposed to feel uh, different energetically, so mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was just a, it was a great collaboration.
3: And uh, what do you think is next for you?
6: I'm writing a supernatural thriller for my wife to direct. That's been fun, and uh, I hope we get to do that. That's a bigger thing. That's a more of a studio type of thing. We're we're working and we're working on a bunch of stuff. I'm halfway through my my next script, and I'm working all the time.
3: Well, thank you, Florence Michael Levine, for being on in the podcast. Thank you, appreciate okay. it.
2: now short ends all right that was alana cody and lawrence michael levine thank you so much for being on the show lawrence uh, we look forward to your next feature awesome can't wait to see it hey it's short end time sweet and i believe uh because of the theme of the show location 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 uh, i've got a location based short end should i dive right in yeah go for it okay so we have this thing here in los angeles and it's it's elsewhere too but Called PeerSpace. It's an app for finding locations for filming. It is just one of sort of the latest ways that you can find a place to shoot your
1: project. It's here. just an automated way to remove location manager as a job. No,
2: I don't necessarily think that. I think this is probably a boon, actually, for location managers because you still are going to
1: actually have to... You're going to have to do some stuff. but you Negotiate. Have to, y- yes, exactly. You have to do more management and less, like, location scouting.
2: They're, they're trying to stay in the way. They're trying to be, like, your middleman so they can take their cut and everything, but uh, I think Probably like a lot of locations and I don't know how well this is going to work for PeerSpace space in the future, except for maybe to find first time clients uh, after that first time. Pretty sure that uh, the location people are going to talk directly to the location and it's not going to be a you
1: know, it's not going to. Yeah, be a, if you have a big enough production and you you can afford to have a location manager that I'm, I'm sorry, I was just joking.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you were just joking about the, the the demise of the location manager. No, no, I'm,
1: I I'm, I'm good with location manager. Yeah, lo- location
2: manager uh, is an important thing, but the infrastructure that exists in Los Angeles is incredible and extreme. And now though, as a director, as a producer, it's easier for you to start making your list of where you might go. I mean, you want a standing courtroom set. Boom. L.A. has got courtroom sets. You can pick L.A. One. has
1: standing everything. We sets. got
2: standing. Uh, we got hospitals. We got jails. Airplanes. We got, uh, uh, UFO. You name it. There is probably a standing set here, which means you don't have anything to build. You, you roll on. You shoot what you need to. You roll out the end. The nice thing about Pure Space is they make it by the hour, which sounds kind of like kinky but no you can rent this space whatever it is and a lot of things what are, like, kind
1: of things are you filming elliot
2: well i'm just saying that anytime you hear renting by the hour it sounds a little bit nefarious it doesn't exactly sound like uh yeah. like you're making a movie but their ad for pure space is oh yeah you know uh 18 an hour you can rent a location uh i've went through it there's not many that are 18 dollars an hour but there are actually several in the 60 to like 200 dollars an hour and let's say you are a low budget filmmaker But you got a few hundred bucks and you really do need to get in, get out to someplace boom you can do that and that is not an only in LA sort of thing this does exist no matter where you are you just have to do more work there's not as much it's not as much ease for is, these is sort it thing. like a
1: very searchable app based kind of a thing you can do
2: it on your phone right now it's like it's,
1: it's super, and, and, super and so like I could say like I need a dirty alley and it'll it'll pull up a bunch of creepy alleys and tell me how by the hour how much I'm going to pay for it
2: I don't think you have to pay much money for a dirty alley
1: but I think that if you actually you be need surprised, it, man because you got to get all the city permits and have the insurance and stuff and you know in my mind when Whenever you're talking about any location, bot if you're there for a day, the bottom price that I just have in my head is usually about $500 minimum, depending on what it is. If it's like a nice house, maybe 2000 and up a day. If it's uh, like a restaurant or something, could even be more.
2: Oh, I, I think that that's all fair. But I'm just saying that most of the people who I think are looking for dirty alley, they're more of the gorilla variety. They're not sure. looking at the at the pier space. But if you wanted the nice house, I looked at nice house there and a kitchen and stuff. They had pictures of it. It was one hundred and ninety an hour or something like that. But then you don't have to spend 10 hours there if you need to do your three shots. That's or true. That's you're true. You're doing a commercial. Maybe you're going to show up and do a shot or
1: whatever it might does be. it give you uh, like ideas of what else it's been in.
2: Hmm. That I didn't notice. Like this uh, is
1: something that always happens is like whenever I'm on a location that I've never been on, people are like, well, you know. And they always say like this movie this this house has been used in some porn movies. I'm like, oh no, what? <laughs> really? Like people will say that to you, and you're like, really? is That's is like, that supposed to make me want to it, rent this place? Not not, not especially. <laughs> I mean, maybe I need to bring more Clorox wipes with me or something oh, than usual. But no. um, <laughs> sorry, but um, no, but but I feel like people like are, are always like here here you know guess what they shot here and uh you know I think you know what my favorite location in L A is my favorite s- standing set is no. Uh, Lacey Street Studios oh yes I did know that and there's a
2: dirty alley there
1: there's a great dirty alley in Lacey Street and I've shot a few like entire projects and uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Lacey Street you've seen it in everything probably if you saw the first Saw movie they shot the entire movie soup to nuts there but then like in Catch Me If You Can Christopher Walken's apartment still standing at Lacey Street Studios it looks like he just walked in to that character's apartment like that's just one of the standing sets they have a ton of amazing sets there
2: I've actually got a client here at Hot Rod. His name is Ilya Tank Shalov, and I Mm -hmm. think I pronounced that correctly, but uh, I usually just call him Ilya, and I don't meet very many other Ilyas, so it's kind of funny. He definitely stands out. Uh, He's got a claim to fame of making the very first feature film on the Blackmagic Pocket 4K camera when that came out. it's a good camera. He he got that camera, and then actually got two of them from us, and then immediately went out into the desert and made a movie, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because his location is incredible. He rented an entire town. He found some place that is slightly more than a ghost town but he was able to get all of the infrastructure by making a deal Whoa. with the town's mayor and so i would tell other people who are not necessarily in los angeles if you, there on, are on small pure space can you get <laughs> do they have whole cities on I, there i don't think they have a whole city on there but he <laughs> made a deal and i i have to imagine it was a sizable chunk of his budget and he had some budget but it's like uh he said I got everything he got like he got a hotel he got Main Street he got all these things that he could do and then put his cast and crew there and all this stuff so it's uh, you can get creative with locations the locations uh, are there's there's all kinds of ways that you can make your movie better and have real production value with a great location.
1: I've probably told you about this in the past. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but the first director I ever worked for worked for when I was an assistant makeup artist was a guy named David Pryor. Who oh, made yes. A, David ba- Pryor. a bazillion movies in Mobile, Alabama. So the first movie I ever worked on that was like a real like professional movie situation was called Raw Justice. When we were making it, it was called Good Cop, Bad Cop. Um, who was the star of Raw Justice? Uh, uh, three stars actually. Uh, Pamela Anderson, who was Whoa. up and coming, like <laughs> yeah. pre Baywatch. It was she might have just gotten on Baywatch at that oh. point. She was I, when I was introduced to her, it was just like, oh, she's the Tool Time girl from Home Improvement. I'm like, never seen it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Pamela Anderson, David Keith, mm-hmm. and Robert Hayes. All right. And it also featured like Charles Napier, who I got to like do makeup on. And I was very excited because he's, you know, like a very storied character actor. And uh, Stacey Keach, who I did not get to do makeup on, but it was also a very nice guy. And uh, it, anyway, it was, it, it was kind of a bananas thing. So the reason I bring it up is that David would shoot a lot. He shot a bunch of movies he made like in his life. He unfortunately passed away about three years ago, but he made over 30 movies, maybe 40 features. Mm-hmm. And he shot most of them in Mobile, Alabama, and he had that city wrapped around his finger. They loved him. He could do anything he wanted. So raw justice was set in New Orleans, but Mobile is just, you know, a few hours away from New Orleans and looks similar to it. So they shot for a couple of weeks in New Orleans to get all the New Orleans looking stuff. And then it was all Mobile. Then it was all Mobile. Mobile playing New Orleans. And they, he got them to shut down the courtroom on a Friday afternoon. Wow. So that we could film, like, a shootout scene in, like, the main courthouse in Mobile, Alabama. I'm sorry, sir. Your case is going to have to wait. We've got a a movie shooting (laughs) here. I'm sorry. You're going to have to be in jail for a few more days because, yeah. And, uh, no, but David would get anything he wanted. And there were certain, like, go-to places where it's like, oh, here's, like, a ramshackle building that I've blown up in two other movies. And there's still enough structure. I can keep blowing it up. And he would use it in everything. Nice. And uh, yeah, he got whatever he wanted. And it was, it was pretty, pretty interesting to see. Cause like, you know, I was brand new to the business and you know, I, I was just like, oh, this is how you get movies made. And he, I learned some tricks from David. You know, it was one of the tricks that I learned. I will tell you, low budget productions, that's where you learn the tricks. Oh. It, re- it really
2: is. Because when it's a big budget production, it's like they just throw money at it and then problem gone. Yeah. Low budget productions can't do that. They like, they have to know the tricks.
1: I remember one of the things that he would do is like if he wanted to shoot in a bar, they would find a bar that had closed and they would just go to the real estate agent or, or whoever owned the, the place and they would just rent this shell of a bar for a day. Hmm. And when I made my senior thesis, Film in college, meeting Mr. Subian, and I did the exact same thing. In be, because I had learned it from him, and we were able to get an amazing-looking bar that, in every direction, looked like a bar. And it had tables and it had chairs, but it had been closed for like a year. And uh, even locals were walking up saying, "Like, Are you guys reopening the bar?" I'm like, no, no, no. We're just filming a movie in here. I'm I'm going to give a little tip, and it's a tip
2: that you know too, because we both worked on uh, Reservoir. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's often bars. That are mostly unused inside of like VFW halls oh, yeah. and like Oddfellows and uh, Elks Lodges and things like that. And you can make a pretty reasonable deal with one of these uh, organizations to shoot inside their bars because most of the time they're just sitting around not being used. And they so, look old timey as hell. Yeah, they, they definitely often have a dive bar quality. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Uh, Yeah. And um, uh, God, I worked on a terrible movie that actually we shot in an open bar and uh, and it was packed and loud. And I was like, how are you going to use the audio from any of this? And I think (laughs) the answer was they
1: didn't. (laughs) Well, and even by the way, on the same pathway, the way that uh, the the feature that I directed that Walt Lloyd shot Alien Raiders. I hate the title. I still have a hard time saying it because it's a dumb title um they uh we shot that in a closed grocery store the whole movie takes place in a grocery store and we got basically the shell of a grocery store and like all the shelves were up all the cash registers and everything and products on the shelves uh no we had to stock the whole place wow so did was it cheaper to just buy stock or did you fake stock so we did a bit of both. Some st- we also had some product placement, but because it was kind of a horror movie, it's hard to say like, hey, yeah. So this character is going to be bludgeoned to death with your product. Nobody, nobody wants to hear that. No
2: one wants that product.
1: <laughs> no. So uh, your product
2: makes a great bludgeon.
1: <laughs> so uh, what we, what I was told by the production designer, uh, we ended up doing was going to like the dollar store has mm. like a clearance store where everything is thirty three cents. What the dollar
2: store has a clearance store?
1: Yeah. So they would you know. go get like, <laughs> like cases and cases of like hot sauce and stuff like that and you found something cheaper than the dollar store yeah. i mean we did get some product placement and some of it was like uh liquor companies and stuff like that yeah because they didn't care about a horror movie and oh no to they, death. They, they were they're they all they knew who their audience is colt 45 uh, great for killing monsters
2: nas uh. energy
1: drink it was if you look in the movie you'll see works every time but like when the movie was over uh the uh <laughs> basically, the place got looted. <laughs> like, basically, they, they told the crew like just go grab hey, whatever you want and ho hos. I know. I, I <laughs> think on. I might have I might have gotten some some dog food that day for for Pepper. We only, we only had pepper. Oh, at the you time. don't want to be wasteful, and you got a bunch of people there. Who are like, this food's still edible. But, but apparently, the liquor aisle was cleared within like five <laughs> minutes, and some of that stuff was supposed to go back. <laughs> Wah, wah. anyway you didn't give any exclusions you said oh yeah just go have at
2: it oh maybe i, I maybe didn't skip say skip. any of it i
1: had no part of this discussion it just was had happened like i was off like in you, a feudal position because i'd finished making a movie
2: oh i thought you'd like i was with second unit that day or you know. no no
1: it, once we wrapped the whole movie oh, like gotcha. the last shot of the movie was inside the grocery store the last scene the last everything all right, so so Ben, what's your short end this week? So on on the theme of location, 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 it is a podcast. I apologize; it's uh, another podcast. Uh, I'm a podcast addict, and we wouldn't be doing this podcast if I wasn't. Um, <laughs> so it, oh, all right, I'll, I I I withdraw my size. It is called We Crashed, The Rise and Fall of WeWork. That actually sounds like something I would absolutely listen to. It's, it's so good. Now, I have to warn you, the host of it is an NPR guy who is a really good journalist, but he sounds super radio the whole time. He's, the
2: whole time radio guy.
1: Yeah. So like, and I think that, Rock Cola. I think that we're used to uh, podcasts that are narrated by people from the This American Life School of, you know, close
2: talking to the microphone, yeah, breathy.
1: That's not this guy. No. This guy sounds like he is a trained radio voice and is reading copy. And that's OK. The story is bonkers. So for those of you who don't know, WeWork was uh, an Internet startup that was sort of They're like still around. They're not gone. That's true. They are still around. They were kind of a, the, the idea was uh, creating co-working spaces that would force people to you know, you could rent an office or you could rent a desk or you could you know, th- there were several tiers of. Of membership it was a membership based thing like a gym except you'd go there to work i i know something about this and actually their story is fascinating and i'm assuming this is what the
2: podcast is going to go into but like they raised a ton of money like from SoftBank, like like on this huge huge it, fund it was like I believe a property in, the, in the tens
1: of billions
2: and then they tried to have an ipo which failed they want they want to want to go public and wall street looked at the numbers and went what and they didn't, they ended yeah. up canceling the IPO. Well,
1: you, you just kind of spoiled the whole podcast, but yeah.
2: Oh, well, I I, I assume that everyone knew that part. I thought that that was the no, part the, that everyone knew. The podcast so.
1: is kind of like going deep into it. And there's sort of a, I think we're starting to see a bunch of podcasts like this. Like there was one called Dropout that was about the woman who founded Theranos, mm-hmm. who was equally diluted in, in, uh, in her value. Well, they made a whole documentary about that too on netflix yeah the so. document the documentary is great too and uh but the podcast is great and we work is just, it's it, I, I i gather no joy out of seeing somebody fail um i i it's not a schadenfreude exercise however no but you're probably getting a lot more
2: detail than the synopsis i just did which was oh, the of he- course, yeah. which was the headline then it was covered on you know harvard business and everything else
1: no so. no there's there's deep interviews with everybody and you realize like the kind of smoke and mirrors of high tech fundraising where basically you get a guy, the guy who, who founded WeWork, is sort of a very charismatic, very interesting person who has a compelling story to tell, and he spins a yarn and has an idea for technology. And this is after he'd had several failed uh, startups that that went nowhere. And before you know it, he's got billions and billions of dollars. And it's basically just talking his way into billions and billions of dollars. And I do think that like sometimes I'll hear that these these internet companies, you know, or these technology based companies, are valued in the crazy multiple billions of dollars, and I'm like. That can't be. Like, really? That can't be. You know, like, I mean, I, I get something like Airbnb. WeWork has assets. They bought buildings. They built buildings. But they also then, all this stuff. Also, then they bought, like, this uh, IP that was, like, a way to make surfable wave pools.
3: What? Yeah. Like,
1: they basically... <laughs> okay. They basically went on a spending spree and just and bought, bought stuff. Bought stuff that they thought would be interesting that had nothing to do with co-working. You know what? If you're one of those people who go out and buy
2: things like that, call me. I've got something to sell you, like right now. That is way better than a surfable you, you, wave. You pool. can just
1: buy yeah. me. I'll I'll make you a movie about yourself. <laughs> anyway, it, it's just a it's a fascinating story of of excess, and I feel like one of the stories of this moment in history is sort of the excess of the tech companies and how, you know, a tech company, I, I even, um, I, I, I'm not going to say who it was, but I, uh, did some work for a tech company a few years ago, some very minor video editing, and I met the CEO and I, he seemed like a cool enough guy. And I went home and I looked him up to see what he was worth. And this is a company that maybe you would have heard of. Maybe you wouldn't have, I doubt it's really something that it's, it, it wasn't like YouTube. It wasn't something that humongous, the guy was it wasn't like, Amazon, it was not. And the guy was worth like $75 million. And and this company was a company I was aware of, but it wasn't like a necessity in my life. And I'm sure it's a necessity in some people's lives, but like $75 million for him, how much is the company valued at all this stuff? And it's like, they are in a really nice office in a really expensive part of town. And obviously they've got, outrageous amounts of funding. And I'm like, is the world that desperate for this particular service? Meh, I don't know. And I think that there's a gold rush aspect to a lot of tech the te- to, yeah, specifically technology driven companies. And some of them are turn out to be Netflix and are really onto something. And a lot of them aren't, you know, and Theranos, you know, was basically a scam. And WeWork wasn't a scam uh, at all, but the guy running it was nuts, just nuts. And and as soon as someone says this nuts guy is worth $10 million, then everybody just cows and listens to him and does whatever the hell he says.
2: Well, it, it seems to me, though, that that may not be the case anymore, especially when your IPA, I, I mean, uh, IPA, <laughs> your, your, when your yeah. beer, your, when your IPO fails and it's like, Wall Street used to just be like, oh, all these other people invested. I guess I have to invest, too. And the fact that the brakes were put on, the fact that so many people went this business plan and these assets and this valuation all seem ridiculous. That's like that's really, really different because that's that's not the type of thing that typically happens when you have a successful what appears to be a successful company showing up. They go like, oh, you should buy this because everyone else is buying it, too. And you don't want to be left behind.
1: Well, and WeWork to me seems like such a like I was even looking into it recently myself because I'm writing a project right now uh, in the in the wake of Video Palace and I. I also have a baby so I was seeing like how hard would it be for me to get like a desk somewhere that I could just write quietly and be left the hell alone you know and and, and you and don't want to be that guy at Starbucks I can't be I can't focus if I try and write at Starbucks it, it it drives me nuts I will always remember that text that I got from you where you said you became everything
2: you loathed by going to Starbucks and working on a script
1: yeah and it lasted you know what happened that day I can tell you exactly what happened that day so someone someone harassed you no you nobody harassed me okay. I was sitting there and I just and I went to a Starbucks where I didn't know anybody and I was like I'll i will just going to be this anonymous guy with headphones on and Starbucks sitting at my laptop writing. And then I found myself outrageously distracted. Mm. And I could not focus on writing the thing that I did. So I did the unsexiest thing, but it really worked. I went to the library. You went know, to the library. You know what? The my, library
2: is awesome for that.
1: I went to the library with my it's laptop. Free. Sat there. Nice desk. Wi-Fi. Blah, blah, blah. Wrote away. Nobody want. I don't want to talk to anyone at the library. Nobody wants to talk to me. Perfect.
2: I am so glad the library exists. It's not because people haven't tried to get rid of the library, but the library is fantastic for exactly what you just said.
1: Yeah. So, and you know, basically if everybody knew about the library, maybe WeWork wouldn't have gotten that far. Somebody would have been like, can't you just do this at the library?
2: <laughs> well, the library doesn't have the fancy kitchens that WeWork has. Yeah, or, you they know, they the, don't have
1: the, kombucha yeah. Wednesday or...
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: They certainly don't own a a wave pool surfing IP. I want
2: to say, though, I did see something about yoga at the Studio City Library, which, you know, is totally like out of a WeWork. We we take
1: my son to story time at the library. Same library. Yeah
2: anyway okay so uh so ben you've got a, a fantastic uh podcast for, for everyone to listen to and now i'm gonna have to add it to my list
1: uh, check it out i think you'll like it and you'll certainly like the radio sounding announcer can't wait he's pretty awesome
2: <laughs> explosion <laughs> <laughs> all right ben so uh that does it we're gonna come back uh, right away with another episode because like i said we're gonna try and squeak this one in quick
1: all right who do we need to thank this week
2: thank our producer and part-time host alana cody way to go alana Uh, thank Ben Katz, who put this all together and hopefully made us sound not as, uh, foolish as I think I sound most of the time. Yeah, I'm okay. I don't care. Okay. And then, uh, thanks Kaze Altracci for making some music that we got to use in this episode.
1: Thank you. Check out his website, www.musicbykaze.com. And, uh, if you, if you, for bonus points, literally just email him anything. Uh, hey, Ben, where can people find you? Uh, go to www.benrockonline.com and you'll find all my socials. and you can find me over at hot rod cameras
2: and don't forget about the uh aperture uh giveaway contest that you can find through instagram and
1: our website check it out get some lights free lights give one to your friend or or hoard it for yourself if if you're lucky if you if you're drawing but we give people a lot of different ways to, to to potentially win sweet well thank you very much and we'll see you next week at the cinematography podcast